Are you tired of seeing the anger and the violence in the news, in the streets, across social media? I'm really tired of it. But there are those, including my guest today, that says anger is not all bad. In fact, it can be very useful. I'm a little skeptical, but I'm always open. So join me now when I talk to nationally known anger researcher, Dr. Ryan Martin, to learn the good, the bad, and the ugly of anger. I'm Sarah Heiner, and this is the Bottom Line Advocator Podcast. Don't forget, rate and review and share, share, share. Well, hi. Happy Thursday, everybody. Um, I'm sitting here chatting with Dr. Ryan Martin, who's going to join me in just a minute, and we're going to talk about anger today. The good, the bad, and the ugly of anger. Anger is obviously a challenging emotion. He and I were just talking about how he and I could talk for hours. It's so the levels, the complications, the multiple ways that it manifests in us, in society, what we're seeing around us. Um, So that's coming up in just a moment. I will give you my usual reminders. Um, We have a growing list of of videos that we've created in Facebook as well as on YouTube in the Bottom Line Inc. YouTube channel. So go there, subscribe, tell your friends about them. If you missed this or if you want anybody else to see this video, um, that you can tell them to come back to Facebook. In a few days, we'll have it posted in YouTube. So tell them to come and then you can share it like crazy because please do because we have an anger thing going on. Um, anyway, so YouTube, Facebook Lives. Um, we also have, uh, there'll be a link in the chat there, download our immune boost book. It is for free. They, you know, they won't let us out. They won't let us free. They won't let us know that COVID is going away. COVID will not, and here's Sarah Heiner's theory on things. COVID will not magically disappear tomorrow. As hard as we try and everybody's vaccinated, it will go down. It is working. It's what we need to do. The number one thing you can do is strengthen your immune system. We have bodies that know how to be healthy. We have bodies that know how to fight germs. They do it every hour of every day for us, for millions of germs around us. So that includes COVID, but the doctors aren't telling you how to strengthen your immune system. They're telling you to mask up, stay away, wash your hands, that's all helpful. Get vaccinated, absolutely, if that's what you choose to do. But there are other things you can do to strengthen your body our natural defenses, they know what to do. So we've got a, a great book that we've we put together. I've been talking about this for months. Our editors put together with strategies, simple strategies that you can use to boost your immune system, strengthen you, and that way you, that way you can go back out with confidence um, in spite of what, what the fears are. So download that now, so click on that. If you have questions about anger, if you got ticked off this morning when you were (laughs) at your kids, at your spouse, when you were not driving to work or maybe driving to work, now the traffic is picking up a little bit, type those out in and we can share those. Lauren, as usual, is going to be passing along questions to me. When I look on down, it's usually her telling me something that I've forgotten to do or say or something. Um, And let me say one other thing. Um, just to give you a heads up, I love doing these Facebook lives, but actually this is going to be the last one that I'm going to do for a while. Um, I'm kind of relooking at the communication channels of our messages. And so I'm going to pause on the Facebook live. So I love and appreciate your, your sharing this time with me. Again, I've got hundreds of videos, um, in Facebook live, uh, and in rather in, uh, YouTube, and I will continue doing my blog. If you go to bottomlineinc.com, you can sign up for my blog. That's called common threads. Um, but just want to give you that heads up. So next Thursday, you can, you can send me messages and I'll send you messages, but I'm not going to be chatting with you in the same way. All right. With that, let me bring on Dr. Ryan Martin. Uh, hold on one second. I got to push a button. There's a button and there's Dr. Ryan Martin. Hey there. Hey, how are you? 
I am good. All right. I, let me read your bio so everyone knows how fabulous you are, because I know how fabulous you are, but they don't yet know you, except the million, millions of people who have seen your YouTube, um, your, your TED Talk. All right. This is nationally known anger researcher, professor of psychology, and associate dean of the College of Arts and Humanities and Social Science at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, Ryan Martin. Um, his TED Talk is entitled Why We Get Mad and Why It's Healthy, a fabulous TED Talk. Um, and 3.2 million uh, viewers have agreed with me that it is a fabulous TED Talk. Um, he's the author of a great book, Why We Get Mad, How to Use Anger for Positive Change. Again, we're going to talk about that anger is not just a negative. Anger can actually be a good force. It's, it's been important for us evolutionarily, and we're going to talk about that right now. He also has his own podcast called Psych and Stuff. I've listened to it. You should listen to it. It's a great podcast. And you can learn all about Ryan's activities at alltheragescience.com. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, being here and the nice introduction. I just read the bio. You did it. <laughs> so. All right. Well, let's start out. This is going to sound like the weirdest question. Could you define anger? Because I don't think it's such a simple yep. thing to define. And I think people morph it and mush it into all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. And I think I agree with you. And I think that's a real problem uh, when it comes to understanding it is that people oftentimes confuse it with some other related concepts. So they confuse it with violence. They confuse it with aggression. Um, and ultimately, anger is an emotion. It's a feeling state. It's it's in some ways analogous to uh, you know, fear, sadness, jealousy, a lot of other feeling states that we're familiar with. Um, and more specifically, it's the, it's the feeling state associated with having been wronged, having had your goals blocked in some way. And there is, coming along with it, is a desire to lash out. So there's a desire, we, don't, we often don't actually um, act on that desire, but there's a desire to lash out either physically or verbally at, at whoever or whatever wronged us. So do you think that people have, have kind of um, used that as a catch-all phrase that in, in effect in your TED talk, you talk about, I'm so mad, I'm so mad. And that, you know, that people just use that language and mm -hmm. that they may or may not even be feeling it or that we're later on, we'll talk about, um, what's the phrase that you use? The um, labeling, you know, where you use, you use words that then kind of almost drive your emotion. So are we, are we using it, misusing it, overusing that light in some way? And then it's creating this angry undercurrent. Right. You know, I think we probably, and I've not necessarily thought about it in this way before. So, but I think probably what happens is that people overuse it when they're talking about others. Mm -hmm. um, and so when they see instances of violence, they think about and talk about that as being an angry person. And it might be, but sometimes there's a, there's a lot more that drives violence than just anger, right? Violence is about power. Sometimes violence is instrumental. They're doing it for a particular goal. Um, there's a lot more than drives that than anger. I think the, the opposite though, is that sometimes when people are talking about themselves, they really have a tendency to minimize their own anger, that they, they think that anger is just that outward expression of anger. So they, so I, I routinely hear people say, I don't really get mad. But what they mean is I don't yell, I don't scream, I don't punch people. Um, but I think unquestionably they get mad. They just express it differently. They might go pout in another room. They might just turn it inward on themselves and, and suppress it. 
um, there's, I think, but unquestionably they're, they're becoming frustrated or angry at something. It's just that they don't tend to express it the way they think anger is always expressed. It's funny. I was going to ask you about, I'll call it seething silent anger. You know, it's easy yes. when you, know, you get mad, you yell at your kids, you let, you, 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 you tell a funny story in your book about flipping the bird to someone in a parking lot that didn't work out so well at the grocery store. Uh, but that's like, that's easy. That's almost like the release, like you get it out. Yep. But then there's this quiet seething thing, which actually is very unhealthy in terms of what we're doing to our body, especially as you say, if you're denying that you're angry right. at all. Right. Yeah. So, you know, anger can be really internalized uh, in a lot of ways. And sometimes we suppress it and actually sort of blame ourselves and turn it inwardly that way. Sometimes we just sort of bottle it up, though. And then it ends up becoming released in spaces that we consider to be safe, whether they're safe or not. And, and what I mean by that is they, you know, we, we might take it out on our wife and kids or our spouse and our kids um, because it wouldn't be safe, quote unquote, to do it at work and take it out on our boss. And so, you know, we know that there are consequences there. So we bottle it up there and then we handle it poorly yeah. later on. And, um, and, and there is that, I think, that sort of silent seething rage. And it, it's not good for us. It's not good for us in a lot of ways. Um, there are all sorts of physiological consequences. It's associated with other negative emotions. Um, it, it's associated with substance use. Um, and ultimately, the scenario I just described, it's associated with relationship problems. Right. And a lot of health issues, actually. A lot of inflammatory cascading yep. Yep. That, in, that increases risk of all sorts of illness and, and death, frankly. So yes, absolutely. Do you think that we're angrier now than we were five years ago and 10 years ago? Yeah, I, you know, I get this question all the time and, and I love it. It's a great question. And it, <laughs> I, I love it. I think it's a great question. And I honestly wish that I had a great data-driven answer for, for you. Um, I, so here's my best guess, because we, we don't have any sort of data that we can look at you know, that's really going to tell us the answer to this in a lot of ways. My best guess is that we are. Um, and here's why I think we are angrier than we were five or 10 years ago. Um, there's really two things that I think drive this a lot. One is, I think um, some of, you know, as human beings have become more, as more external pressures have been placed on us as human mm -hmm. beings, whether they're work-related pressures, economic pressures, uh, social pressure, pressures, things like that. I think it's really, really influenced um, the likelihood that we become angry day in and day out. Um, it's what I talk about as the, the pre-anger state, right? When we are sort of anxious, when we're stressed, when we're tense, when we have all these pressures, we're just more likely to snap when things don't go the way we want them to. Um, so that's a big piece of it. I think the other piece of it, um, and, and this won't be too surprising to people, but I do think social media is really driving a, a lot of rage um, and some of it is uh, a little bit indirect. Um, some of it is that it actually exacerbates some of those pressures that we're, uh, that we, that I was just talking about. The other piece is that I think we encounter more um, negative events in our lives. We are not negative events, but provocations, right? We encounter, as we're scrolling through Facebook, we see something from our politically opposite uncle that we wouldn't have necessarily seen uh, five or 10 years ago. And right. then we respond to that. And then, and as, as I said, the inflammatory labeling, that was the phrase that I was looking for, that 
within that social media or within the media in general is this name calling and these these um, categorizations of people that there's there just seems to be this demise in civility, this loss of civility, and that everybody is there's a knee jerk reaction and people seem to feel emboldened especially online. Somehow, like the, I said this before, the nicest people I know, you would never, ever hear a rude mm-hmm. thing out of their mouth. And yet you see what they post online and suddenly they think it's like they're behind the, the hidden screen. No, it's more public than ever, but there's something right. emboldening about it. Yeah, I think, and I think the pandemic has really pulled this out of a lot of us too, that when you have fewer of those face-to-face conversations with people, um, and, and when you are, you know, it's funny, I've been using this term in a different way for a lot longer than we've been talking about, but when we're socially distant from people, um, I've always thought of this in terms of social media, where we are just not in the same room, you don't have the opportunity to, uh, to, to see the way what you're saying is resonating with them. You don't see the facial expression, the, the look of sadness on their face when you hurt their feelings. All of those things influence and would encourage us, I think, as human beings to pull back a little bit if we're coming on too strong. And when we're when we're not seeing that as we are oftentimes aren't with social media, it, it really encourages us to do and say things and label in ways we otherwise maybe wouldn't. And I think really, you know, the one of the biggest problems, and I say this as a lover of social media, someone who's uses social media a lot, um, I think that they're there, there aren't enough nuanced conversations there. And so you do get those sort of, as you describe them, there's these categorizations, right? There's, there's, you know, I mean, people talk about the blue feed and the red feed when it comes right. to politics is really sort of driving the way we, we think about things. Um, and and chamber you know, besides that. Yes, exactly. So you are bombarded with the idea that your perspective is the only perspective <laughs> that is correct. And then you face someone every now and then who's got a different one. And it feels like, well, how could this person possibly believe this? Everybody knows this is true, you know? And, and so it, it becomes easier to, to, to label them, easier to categorize them. So let me go the other way though. Let me ask you this. So the baby boomers were the me generation and then the baby boomers grew up and we raised a whole, a whole generation of kids as helicopter parents, chopper parents. And we all worried about their self-esteem. And we wanted to be sure that nobody felt bad. And we wanted to be sure that they all got participation trophies. And we really um, pushed on fairness and didn't want winners and losers. So, which is fine, different discussion, but has that circled back? And now we've created this, uh, I'll call it um, emotionally handicapped generation that are so, I'll use the word narcissistic, it's probably extreme, but so me-centered and they can't tolerate or don't know how to manage the disappointment when they've been taught that it's all about them and no, honey, I want you to be happy and feel good and what do you want? Like, it's almost like we're breeding in mm-hmm. intolerance that then they don't know how to manage their emotions and voila. Yeah, and it, you know, the, the word I would use, I mean, I agree, I think it is a, a version of narcissism, not, and I know you didn't mean it the clinical way, not the clinical right. way, but certainly on that on that uh, spectrum. It's about me, what do I want? It's, I'll call it, I, I, you know, I always describe two-year-olds as libidos with legs. <laughs> you know, it's now right. we've got 15-year-olds and 20-year-olds as libidos with legs. Mm-hmm. Satisfy my needs now. Yep, and I think that really, I mean, you can think of it, the, the word I would use is entitlement, right? Mm-hmm. That we have people who really expect 
things, um, you know, to be, and I, I don't necessarily mean entitlement the way sometimes people do when they talk about the young generation. You know, I, I mean it in a sense of we live in an on-demand world where um, many, many things that we used to have to wait for yeah. come right away, right? right? And you're used to getting things when you want them quickly uh, in ways that you want. And, and I do think that's, it's shortening uh, people's p- levels of patience. There's actually research very recently that said um, that just as a, as a trait, entitlement predicts anger when you don't get what you want. You know, that yeah. essentially if, you, if you're used to getting what you want, that you see it as an absence of fairness when all it is is now you just have to wait for a little while. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's just so unfair. It's all about me. And I like that. So that our bar of tolerance, which is a really dangerous thing. When you then cycle back, you said anger is not violence. And yet something's going on with violent protests, violent, you know, attacks and all that sort of stuff. I mean, obviously anyone that's shooting wherever they are, the shooting of the day, unfortunately, another one today, those are, there's other things going on. They're clearly sick people, but the the rage that then surrounds it. I mean, there's just, it's like this soup of rage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think honestly, one of the, the concepts I've become increasingly interested in related to all this is how people define fairness, mm-hmm. um, how they tend to think about fairness. And I suspect that though I haven't seen research on this specifically, I suspect that how you define fairness um, really does drive your your likelihood of getting angry. I think that people, because oftentimes fairness is often is, well, I didn't get what I want, which right. is very different from how I would define fairness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. All right. So let's talk about actually the causes of anger because um, mm-hmm. you know, expectations and, and demandingness, you talk about having their needs met or is at the core of it. So there are a number of things that you say are underneath anger. Um, and then we will talk about the benefits of anger as well, but let's just, I like to kind of lay the foundation for it. Yeah. So, um, anger ultimately is, you know, people have a tendency to think that it is driven by these provocations that we face. And even as we've been talking about it, we've been focused a lot on these, on these external things. Um, but ultimately those provocations, they're relevant, these things that happen to us that we face, but they interact with these two other really important elements of, of our personal experience. One is the mood we're in when we face them. So the grocery store example you mentioned earlier, you know, this this was a day where I was in a, I was in a really crabby mood for a lot of reasons. Um, it had been a really, really bad morning. Uh, it was Mississippi, it was July, I was hot. All these little things that kind of came together and I, I was provoked and I handled it poorly, right? Um, and so, you know, that mood state is is part of it, right? Fatigued, all these different things that that filter in. Mm-hmm. But then ultimately, what really matters most is our what we call our appraisal, right? Our interpretation of this uh, this event, um, this thing that happened. And we tend to, when we appraise things as uh, negative, as unfair, as blameworthy, as punishable, things like that. When we look at them and we, there's specific thought types we tend to have, there's like overgeneralizing where we say, oh, this always happens to me, or things mm-hmm. never go my way, or right. um, catastrophizing or labeling. All of these are things that exacerbate our response to that provocation and lead to that increased anger. So the, sorry, I just realized I had a phone that I didn't unplug and it's been known to break during this. So now I've interrupted us myself. Um, 
The important part of that to me is the interpretation, right? So that like, because again, back to the sensory, what's the filter that we're viewing the world through, right? So, you know, it was, it was so unfair. It never happens. Like life's, life's not fair. The, you know, um, that person is so inept like that, that it's the, our tolerance, our bar of tolerance to me is so impactful on mm -hmm. whether it comes out as anger or understanding. You know, if you're at uh, the, the line I always use is talking about, you know, you're online, there's the chatter in your head, you're online at the cashier at the grocery store and it's taking forever. And in your mind is going, oh my gosh, how can you be so slow? I honestly can't. But somewhere inside you also can go, maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe they're, you know, whatever that this is, you know, this person maybe was it a, I'm making this up, was it a car accident? They had brain damage and this is a huge success that they're actually being able to have this job. Um, mm -hmm. So the, the filters to me, it's so the filter seems to be such an important aspect to our experience of anger. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of it as, you know, these, these different appraisal processes that we bring into it, these different interpretations, they're very much driven by the lens through which we see the world, right? The, and, and, you know, the, the filters that we're looking at things through, I even think of it as sort of broader as our, our worldview, our, our schema for what kind of person we are, what kind of people other people are. And, you know, if I approach the world and my lens is that most people are incompetent, Right. If I see the world, well, then I'm going to find instances of that in my day to day interactions. And one of those might be the grocery store clerk and another the others might be people I work with. But if I approach the world and my lens is most people are trying their best. Mm -hmm. And when they make mistakes, that they regret them just like I do. If I approach the world that way, well, I'm going to have a very different interaction with the grocery store clerk. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt in ways that. Um, that, that the first person might not. I'm gonna approach my coworkers differently. I'm gonna think of them as being, um, you know, ultimately sort of good people who are trying their best and sometimes they might get behind, but that's because they have a tough job, just like I have a tough job. Yeah. And, you know, it, that lens really does shape the thoughts that come out of us in the moment when we're, when we're provoked. Yeah, well, and then again, we're going to, we'll talk about the benefits of anger and that it does have a role evolutionarily, but it's so not healthy to live through that lens of everyone's out to get me, that everyone right. is so mediocre, everyone's so inept relative to me. And then you're just living in this world of frustration, which creates this kind of sick self-destructive spiral. Right. And, and ultimately, I mean, this is one of the things when, when I encourage people to, to intervene. You know, people oftentimes they think about, well, the best way to deal with anger is by deep breathing or meditation. And, and those things work. Those things are great, but there's some deeper level work we can do. And yeah. we can, we can make decisions about how we choose on some level, we can make decisions about how we choose to interact with the world around us, how we choose to approach people day in and day out. Um, and when we're thoughtful and when we're aware of the lenses that we're looking at the world through, we can, we can, we can switch those lenses out for different lenses. Yeah. So how about, and again, I think this probably calls in, falls into some of your categories, but how about things like fear and shame or embarrassment, um, I think are kind of three things in particular that are often underneath anger. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I always said to my kids, like people get angry when they get caught. 
you know, that right. because now they got embarrassed. So they, you know, the best defense is a good offense. So um, to me, those are three primary emotions that are deep and leave people vulnerable that are mm-hmm. triggered. What do you, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think, you know, it's really important for people to realize that anger and any emotion, they typically don't happen in a vacuum, right? We, we feel uh, anger at the same time we're feeling other things. And sometimes, uh, sometimes anger actually, people, one of the questions people ask me often is, do you think anger is a secondary emotion? And I think it can be, right? But, um, mm-hmm. Behind, you know, sometimes what's driving this is, you know, hurt. I'm feeling hurt. I'm feeling sad. Right. Um, feeling embarrassed or shamed, um, feeling scared, those things all tend to, to go along together. Um, and in fact, one of the, you know, you think about uh, like anger versus fear in a particular instance, first of all, physiologically, those two things are very, very similar, right? Mm-hmm. You, you feel them, it, it would be hard, you'd be hard pressed to, to find differences in the way right. you feel those two things physically. One of the big differences um, has to do with uh, in part, how much power you have in a particular situation. Mm-hmm. If, if you're provoked, if you are, if you have no power in the situation, say like, let's talk about a literal provocation, someone much bigger than you, someone holding a weapon or something like that, you're likely to be scared. Same situation, but the person's much smaller than you, not holding a weapon. Um, you're more likely to become angry with them for that. So how much power you have in the situation also influences this. Yeah, that's huge. And I think that's actually been, I mean, it was a Tinder category over the summer. And I think that the lack of control, we were all so stuck in our homes and out of control with COVID that mm-hmm. just the, the um, George Floyd was, a, was the spark that just lit off all this other suppressed. Right. You know, we were in control here, but we can control that. We can react to that. Like yep. it just let loose this massive amount of yeah. I think I think we really can't minimize the impact of the pandemic on mm-hmm. a variety of of problems right now. People are having related to anger. I think it's I think it's driving um, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. It's really driving a lot of the just the angst people are having. And then when you add to it, you know, we're in the middle of this really, really huge election just a, a few months back, you know, that that also influenced that, that, that led to tension and fear and anxiety and anger mm-hmm. that, that was also uh, adding to that um, economic problems. I mean, you, we could keep going and yeah. there's been a lot that, and all of those things, you know, those things affect people, not just hearing about it in a big picture, but dealing with it day in and day out. They, those things have an, have an impact um, and influence our mood when we're dealing with other totally unrelated stuff. Yeah, and we'll talk, you know, later on about how to manage your anger in a constructive way. And again, finding an avenue, a pathway of control to get whatever it is that you wanted, or to you know, right. to satisfy whatever that frustration is, is so important to so that you don't feel like a victim, so that you don't feel helpless, you don't feel kind of mm-hmm. imprisoned by your situation. Right. Right. So physiologically, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by um, brain plasticity and the habituation of our thoughts. And have we now, because of this cycle of anger, because of this, this kind of frequent behavior, anger reaction that we've mm-hmm. now gotten into this you know, very comfortable zone with, 
do we need to almost rewire our brains? Has anger become a habit for a lot of people that the first response mm-hmm. is anger versus take a breath, consider the situation, et cetera? I think it has. I mean, I think that the the emotional responses you you typically gravitate towards, they become just more and more habitual and more and more consistent. And um, and so one of the things I really encourage people to do is that it, it's almost impossible to change them in the moment when provoked. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, better, the better option or better move, I think, for most people is to try and um, like think about those responses when you're not angry. Mm-hmm. So think back on the last time you got angry. How did you handle it? What did you do? What do you wish you had done? Um, what thoughts were you having? And ask yourself those questions, um, especially when those things are patterns, right. um, you know, especially the situations that tend to lead to them, because chances are a thing that made you mad yesterday, it might happen again, right? <laughs> the, the circumstances that led to it. And so you have the opportunity to rethink it when you're not angry, and that's going to feed into the decision you make next time. So if you have time for an example, I'll tell you, I, back when I used to take my kids to, uh, to school every day, they are now, uh, you know, home or virtual schooling for a little while. But back when I used to take them to school every day, one of the things that um, was a consistent source of frustration for me was how long it took them to get out and get into the car. Uh, you know, that the, I always felt like the time in between me saying, hey, it's time to go. And then them being in the car with their shoes on and stuff just was way too long. And I would... I would snap often. And every time I did, it sort of, it kind of ruined, not the day, but it ruined the morning. I sort of mm-hmm. felt, I felt bad about it. You know, usually the drive is a fun time of day. We, we would, you know, it's bonding. Uh, and instead everyone was crabby. So I stopped myself and started really thinking through this. This happens every day. What are some problem solving approaches I can take to deal with it? Better yet, how can I even rethink this? You know, once I, some of this is just, their kids it takes them longer to tie their <laughs> shoes than it takes me to tie their, my shoes. You know, it takes them longer to get their stuff together. Um, they don't have 45 years worth of practice. I do. Uh, and so um, being able to, to think through that just, but then the other piece of it is I, at one point I just said, you know what, at the end of the day, this is adding two minutes to my commute in the morning. That's not a big deal. And mm-hmm. What I need to just acknowledge is I want to prioritize my relationship with them mm-hmm. over those two minutes. Yeah. And I just need to decide that's more important than, than getting to work two minutes earlier. Yeah. And, and so making those intentional choices and then the next day when it happens, I can remind myself in the moment. I've already prepared for this. I've already thought about it. I love that. Now, how important is it? Because you were self-aware enough to, to stop and look. And somewhere somewhere in that was you kind of asked your question or you noticed like, how was that working for me? That right. strategy wasn't working for you. So when people, how important is it when people are, they keep doing the same thing over and over and then you go, how's that working for you? Like, is it getting you what you want? Or are you ending up feeling angry and cranky every day and it gets you off on a bad, bad foot with your kids? Yeah, I think it's really important. And I think what is also important is recognizing the, the role you play in it and being able to acknowledge that there are things you can do to change this. Too many people, I think of think of anger as a thing that happens to them, right? I got mad because this person's provoking me. I get mad because my kids are doing this or they made me mad, right? Even more direct. Instead of acknowledging I'm angry 
and I'm playing a role in this. There are things I can do to, to change the situation. And, you know, it's funny because sometimes I think people's gut is to say, but then I'm just, it just feels like I'm blaming myself. Doesn't that just make me sad? But to me, it feels really empowering. It feels mm-hmm. like, oh, good. I'm no longer a, a victim here. I'm no longer, um, you know, I, I actually get some control over, over my life and over my emotions and my feelings. Uh, to me, that's a good thing. It's so funny. I was, I literally just wrote down the word victim. I had the exact same thought that when people play victim, they don't realize they've just given all their power away to mm-hmm. their five-year-old or to the guy in front of them in traffic or to the boss, to whatever it is. The minute you go, it's their fault. Right. You just lost all your power in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And even in those circumstances that are that, that we have no control over, even those circumstances that do literally happen to us, it's still on us, I think, to think about what we what role we play in navigating them from that point on, mm-hmm. right? How do we, you know, how do we work our way through this going forward, knowing that this is the, now the trajectory we're on, right? And we, maybe we didn't choose that, but this is the trajectory we're on. Right. How do we want to navigate that and think through it? And yeah. And I totally get that that takes time for people to come around to. I totally get that that it's it's a hard road to navigate for many people, and and partially because those circumstances can be really really tragic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but is like I always say uh, this motto that, that I think, and bottom line, has lived by this forever: that people have more power over their lives than they give themselves credit for, but they often don't know either what to do or the questions to ask, but we have so much power over our lives. Even what I was talking before with COVID and immune, like mm-hmm. it's your bodies, help your body work and do its thing. Yes, mask right. up, but you know, there are so many other things that we can be doing for ourselves. All right, let's spend a couple minutes about those benefits because I keep promising and I said the good, the bad and the ugly of, of anger. So let's talk about some of that good of anger. Now they did yes. serve an evolutionary purpose and someone did beat the saber tooth tiger because of it. Yes, yeah. So, you know, ultimately when you think about what anger does and this, so um, I guess backing up a little bit, uh, emotions exist because they served a survival benefit. Um and they were valuable to us. They were valuable, whether it was um, as a, a fighting off forces of nature or because it helped preserve uh, relationships and those relationships were important for survival. And so, um, you know, anger alerts us to danger, disgust alerts us to things that contaminants, things that can kill us. Uh, anger alerts us to unfair treatment. It says, someone or something is interfering in your goals. And so it's one of the ways our brain tells us this. And then it also adds that second step of energizing you to confront that injustice. And so when your fight or flight system kicks in, that is your brain's way of, of energizing your body to, to fight back or to respond to that injustice. Um, and that, I think of that as being a really, really powerful source of fuel in our lives, that we can use that same fuel and, and maybe we not, maybe we shouldn't, you know, get in physical fights. We shouldn't uh, attack people uh, in that way, but maybe it energizes us to register voters. Maybe it energizes us to write letters to the editor, to, um, to, to write poetry and create art. Um, you know, there are all these things we can do with our anger. Um, 
and with that fuel and energy that it provides. And again, so then back to, I'll call it the anger, I'll call it under control versus out of control anger. That if you use that right. as the trigger or the inspiration mm-hmm. and the, or the motivation, and then right. we'll, we'll talk in a minute. And Vicki just asked a question about best approach to addressing your anger. And we're going to talk about strategies, mm-hmm. um, but it's the, it's the motivator, but you don't want it to spin out of control. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I, this is why I like the fuel metaphor so much because uh, like any fuel, yeah, it can explode, right? It can, it can burn up in ways you don't want it to, and it can cause you all sorts of problems, but when kept under control, uh, it can be used in all sorts of positive ways. Um, and, and when we channel it into healthy, productive responses, um, it can be it can be really effective and really meaningful. Tony, there's a doctor that I've I've talked to a lot. He's been on a number of my videos. Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum. He's a holistic practitioner, and um, he talks about that use anger like be angry until it doesn't serve you anymore. Like feel your anger, mm-hmm. yell at your kids for a moment because sometimes you just got to yell. Maybe you know, but or do whatever. Like sometimes you have to express that anger strategically but then when it starts mm-hmm. to eat at you and it starts to become destructive the destructive side of it then let it go right this is i've been really um this is going to sound uh a little ridiculous i've been a little obsessed with the idea of letting go lately um which is a weird thing to be obsessed with but um but i i think that i think it's um I think it's fascinating. I mean, I think we have to acknowledge that there are things we cannot solve, problems we personally can't solve um, for one reason or another. And every now and then, we've got to find a way to keep those things from, from eating at us. Mm-hmm. We've got to find a way to keep those things from, um, to, from just tearing us apart. Or for, for me, for a long time, it was ruminating, right? I would, I would go for runs and I would just sit there thinking about this conversation I wanted to have. It's a person I, I was upset with or whatever. And it's been really valuable to start to learn strategies to to let those things that I really can't control go. To do what I can to try and solve them, but at a certain point acknowledge this is not a problem I can solve anymore. I've done what I can, and I need to to find a way to move on. Yeah. And I think that's that's a piece of that. You know, use your anger. Eventually, though, it might not serve you anymore. Eventually, it might. Um, it, it might not serve those around you and you need to find a way to let things go. You have three questions um, about, you know, reflecting on if you should be angry. Was it mm. poorly, unfairly? Is someone or something blocking my goals? And what might I have done to contribute to this? To this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's, um, this is something I've actually been thinking a lot about, actually, even since writing the book. Um, because I think that, uh, I think those are really valuable questions to ask, uh, you know, the, 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 the piece about, was I treated unfairly, the goal blocking piece, those are all really good questions. I admit that I think the first one is really hard to answer. Um, I think that we are having an especially hard time. This goes into the, the question, uh, you re- one of the questions you started with, which is, um, are we angrier now than we used to be? I think it's really hard for people to answer uh, the question of whether or not they have been objectively wronged. Mm-hmm. Um, that 
that especially because I think we've we've gotten not as great at information literacy. We have a harder time evaluating sources. We have a harder time um, keeping those things in our in our in our mind. And and uh, I think people are having a hard time knowing was I objectively wrong or did I just not get what I wanted? And um, and I think those are really it's hard for people to know. And I think sometimes people are reacting on false information when they get angry. Well, and then you said even the third one, which is really difficult for people and their pride to confront, which is, did I, did I contribute to this in some way? Yep. Am I actually responsible for the situation? Did I actually, you know, we all get embarrassed if, if we cut someone else off in the, in traffic, right? And then they flip mm -hmm. us off and then, but you go, wow, maybe I really did cut them off, right? Maybe I am right. driving like a goofball. Yeah. Um, to be, you know, as a very simple example, but I think that people don't like to admit their errors and it's okay. It feels actually to me, very refreshing to admit I'm wrong. Right. Yeah. yeah, that is, you're right. I mean, and part of what makes that really difficult for people is that in those moments, when we are angry, it's, I think we're feeling even more vulnerable mm -hmm. and it's even harder to mm -hmm. acknowledge that we may have contributed to it. And, and, you know, contributed doesn't mean necessarily caused exclusively. It just means that we brought something to this picture um, that, that, that might have influenced how they responded to us, that right. we did or said something that might have drawn something out. And so this isn't intended to, to victim blame, just sort of to own again that responsibility and whether or not we played a role here. Right, right. I mean, you talk... Um the there's the two aspects of it one is um you know when if i'm running late right and like i have one daughter that's very prompt all the time and she'll yell at me and i'm i'm notorious for one more thinging and then she'll yell at me and then i'll get mad at her because she's riding my back it's just a minute what difference does it make but yeah i mean yes i one more thing i shouldn't have like that i created the situation that then created this cascade of anger on the other hand is you have an example in the book about an actor who got mad at their dresser mm -hmm. um, because the dresser messed up, which then put the the gave the actor a hard time, difficulty in a costume change. But he got mad because he was so fearful for his career. He was afraid right. of being embarrassed. He was afraid, like they, the, all those those other emotions under there to the point mm -hmm. of his anger, a secondary emotion in some cases that underneath it, right. that he his his angst definitely contributed to his angry response. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he was he was doing something um, that I like to, that we call catastrophizing, right? He had, he had decided that this moment was going to lead to X happening and then Y happening and then Z happening. And, and, and the, the interesting thing is that all of those things might be true. And one of the things I mentioned in the book is that I imagine the acting community is a very small community that, that errors tend to echo, you know, mm -hmm. that, that mistakes people make tend to be recognized by other directors and, and so on. And so it might've all been true. Um, but yeah, this, this, in his mind, he had taken this thing and said, this happened and therefore all of these bad things were gonna happen. His life was ending, right? His yep, career was exactly. done and he was headed back to, you know, Starbucks. <laughs> right. And so, uh, and so, you know, that, that all of this, um, this catastrophizing, you're right, it leads to fear, it leads to all sorts of, of other emotional experiences, too, that become really, really hard for people to handle, especially in that moment. Well, and blame. I mean, in the end, he, right. now, the, the dresser was responsible, there was, 
Mm-hmm. I thought they earned the blame a little bit in that situation. And you have to buy the book to read the story. Uh, <laughs> I'll plug your book. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll tend to blame as well, whether as a, as a defense tactic, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a concept that we sometimes refer to or that Albert Ellis uh, referred to as other directed shoulds, right? And so we go through the world and we, we kind of decide this is how other people should act. And, and sometimes those things are, are written down, right? I mean, there are laws, right? There are rules, things like that. Sometimes those other directed shoulds, though, are just our own rules. Right, mm-hmm. that we that we have essentially decided. I, I always think of the speed on the highway as being a good example of this because yes, there is a written speed on the, that we're supposed mm-hmm. to go. I know very few people who actually go that speed. The question is always how much over that speed limit are you? You do you go? Yeah. And you know, for some people it's uh, it's five miles over. For some people it's ten miles over. But the interesting thing is, if, if I say five, five is what I like to go. Well, then the person who comes up behind me and rides my bumper because I'm not going fast enough, I think of them as a hazard. You know, I think of them as this, this, this bad person because my other directed shoulds are saying that. The person I come up behind who's driving five under or the actual speed limit, I also think of them as a hazard, you know, that because they're the ones slowing me down. But the speed on the highway, those types of other directed shoulds, they exist all over. That's not the only... Ex- Mm-hmm. experience or the only existence of that they they happen at work we have other directed shoulds for how our co-workers should should act mm-hmm. we have other directed shoulds for you know rules for walking down the street i think the pandemic has brought out a lot of other directed shoulds you know whether or not people are supposed to be how close they're supposed to be who they should be getting together with all of these things yeah there are rules and there are guidelines and there there are directives but then people are also putting their own sort of rules out there for what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And that tends to really drive people's angry response. Which goes back to control. Yes. You know, yes. I, I don't wear masks in the park. I'm outside. I'm in the fresh air. I'm, I'm not with you. Right. And I get hairy eyeballs sometimes about it. Right. That's their problem, not my problem. I am not coughing right. on you. We are walking by. The science does not have me suffocating you in germs when I am out in the park. Um, right. So, but... But then we get, yeah, so we, we rile ourselves up back to our expectations. Mm-hmm. All right, so now what do people do about it? How do they yeah. fix it? <laughs> you know, I, I mentioned before, I'll reiterate though, you know, that, that a lot of people tend to focus on the experience of anger, the idea that, okay, when I'm angry, I need to count to 10. I need to ground myself somehow. I need to do some deep breathing exercises. And all of those things work. I think they're really, really valuable. The thing is, those types of approaches, they deal with one relatively small piece of the, the broader anger experience. And we actually, ha- we can intervene in multiple places when we think about that, like what I call the why we get mad model, right? right? We, can, we can intervene in, our, uh, in, in the provocations we invite into our lives, right? We actually make decisions day in and day out about the things we experience, um, and we can Think about what stuff we want to invite into our lives. I don't see scary movies very often anymore because I didn't like the way they made me feel. I can also do that with, you know, someone's Facebook feed that makes me angry or that I get angry over. So that's one thing. Um, We can also think about how we're taking care of ourselves. We can think of what that pre-anger state, you know, am I getting enough rest? Am I eating well? Am I exercising? Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of this metaphor right now based on some things you said earlier, but the idea that we can, 
we can essentially, you know, build our anger immune system mm -hmm. um, and think about the, the things that we, how we're taking care of ourselves. And then therefore, um, you know, be in a better mood in a better state right. when we deal with that stuff. You and then the, anger isn't a good thing. Right. Right. Uh, exactly. Anger is not a good thing. Right. Um, and then, uh, and then the other is, uh, we can think about our appraisal, um, appraisal process. We can think about the thoughts we're having in that moment. What am I, how am I interpreting this? What am I, um, how am I labeling that person? How am I catastrophizing? How am I, who am I blaming? Um, we can think about all of those different things and we can replace those thoughts with other healthier thoughts. We can make steps to change that lens uh, that we were, were talking about earlier. Um, and then, you know, even after all that's said and done, even when we do get angry, we can think about what we do about it and we can channel it into other more uh, effective strategies. Um, we don't have to go sit and pout in our room, we don't have to yell and scream. We can have productive, though difficult, conversations. Um, we can channel it into to art. We can protest. We can do all sorts of things um, that are good, healthy outlets for that for that frustration and for that anger. Is some of this a two-step process? So Vicky had asked me about, you know, what's the best way to address it? And she talked about deep breathing and relaxing. And she said, but they don't work because you end up, um, I'll call it suppressing her anger. So is it Stop the cascade, the angry cascade in the moment, be it breathing, be it distracting, be it retraining yourself through, you know, over time. And then, as you were saying, in the time of calm to then go and reflect all these other questions. What could I have done differently? What, you know, what control can I have over the situation? What did I do? You know, what was my filters on it, et cetera? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think if you... If you're someone or you're in a, in a, either if because of who you are or because of the state you're in, if you're a person who has a hard time channeling that anger, doing something productive with that anger, it's good to take a little break. It's good to pause. Um, one of the questions I ask myself whenever I'm feeling anything, actually frustration, but frustration or anger in particular, but whenever I'm feeling anything is how do I want things to be? How would I, like, what do I want this situation to be like on the other side of this? And then I started thinking about what things I need to do to get there. And, you know, usually it, the answer to that is not to lash out at someone, not to yell at someone, not to make someone feel bad. That almost rarely is the road to, to where I want to be. Um, and so then I started thinking about, okay, what, what kind of, what are the conversations I need to have? What's the email I need to send? What, what's the thing I need to do to get me uh, to that place? What's essentially the, the road I need to take? Um, and, and that's been a very helpful process for me, but you're right. It's not something I can do when I'm just enraged. Right. Uh, it's because I'm just feeling, or I'm, I'm feeling too much to think about it clearly. Yeah. Um, related to that, talk about impulse control for a second. Again, you talked about that we have no tolerance for it. So what are some recommendations for people to kind of retrain themselves on their impulse control? Yeah, impulse control is probably a, in many ways a better predictor of, of violence than anger is um, a lot of times. Um, one of the things I think that's really, and this goes back to what you said earlier about the habitual piece here that you just, you get there, you get mad and you do the thing right. um, that you didn't want to do. 
Um, one of those, one suggestion I have for people is to really spend time thinking about their anger when they're not angry. This comes back to that training yourself essentially to, to catch yourself earlier. So if, if you know, to, to start, because what will happen is over time, and it, it's a process, but over time, you'll start to remember those things mm -hmm. in the moment. You know, people talk all the time, like, you'll remember your training. Well, right. this is about you remembering your training, that it'll come back to you in that moment. And you'll say, I know I want to snap and I know I want to yell. I'm, I've told myself I, I shouldn't do that, so I'm not going to. And, and I think that can really be helpful. And it takes practice, though. That is not a five-minute thing. And that's nope. okay. And a lot of yep. people, it's kind of like dieting. I want to, I want to take a pill. I want to lose weight. I want to take a pill and fix whatever it is. This is, we've, we've spent years and decades habituating ourselves to immediate gratification mm -hmm. and to whatever responses we have. So it'll take a lot of effort. It may mm -hmm. or may not be overnight to shift that. This sort of, I think it's really fair for people to think this can be true, not just for anger, but for emotions in general being able to to manage these things in healthy ways and i define manage much more broadly than most people do because when i talk about manage i'm talking about channeling it into appropriate directions and all of that being able to manage your emotions is a skill it's a skill that you we've been honing for better or worse since we were infants and you know it takes time to undo those patterns i mean i think it's like any other activity that we engage in um, we, we just got to keep practicing at it and no, it's, there's not going to be a five minute fix. Um, it's something you got to work on. Talk to me for one brief minute. Cause we're just about out of time about posture and facial expression. There was a really interesting part in there about the signals that it tells and that the signals that it gives to our own bodies. Yeah. So, you know, when we become, um, there, there's two sides to this, which is really fascinating, but when we become angry, right, there's this little structure deep in our brain called our amygdala and it fires out messages and basically says, hey, get mad, right? And it sends messages to uh, your hypothalamus, kicks in your fight or flight system. One of the things it does is it fires a message off to your facial motor nucleus, which is this bundle of nerves in your brain stem. And that kicks in your immediate anger facial expression, right? The furrowed brow and the, the flared nostrils, exactly. So uh, it kicks in that, that facial expression. And what's so fascinating about that is that this is the part of the anger response you can't really control. It happens so quickly. Um, and that's part of that evolutionary piece. It, it served us, it's called the threat gesture. Um, it, it served us as a way of communicating immediately. Mm -hmm. We're mad, right? So it tells other creatures how to approach us. And animals, and, dogs do it, cats do it. Like we can see it, we yep. see it in the animal world. Absolutely. In fact, almost you know, Darwin notices when he wrote on the evolution of, of emotion in man and animal. Sorry, I probably butchered that name. Um, <laughs> but when, when he wrote that, um, he, he talked about, you know, uh, the ways in which animals reacted when they were angry or when they were threatened. And he compared it to, to humans. In fact, he even talks about like how, you know, uh, 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 chimps, um, you know, pounding on the ground when it's angry is very similar to a, a human pounding on a table. Uh, when they're angry. And so these things, they, they ex they've existed for a long time. It's part of that evolutionary benefit. So is there, and the funny thing is though, I think that also like the, there's a hormonal feedback loop, right? So is it almost a, a trick, right? Because I know on the flip side, I, I I've talked about this often, if you smile, 
you're released openly. Right. Like you can force right. your body into into releasing yourself and making you feel good. If anyone wants to try it now, I'd just sit there and by yourself and smile, force a smile and see how your body feels. So is it, I'll call it a, a quick trick, if you catch yourself being angry to shift your posture rather than being aggressive, to put yourself a little bit back a little bit, to relax your face, to think about those aspects, which will then send a, a biochemical feedback to your body and right. your brain. There's a, there's a well-known study in psychology where authors did exactly this with, um, with, with all emotion, with four different emotions, but one of them was anger and asked people to adopt an angry posture, didn't tell them why, uh, gave them a sort of a fake explanation for why they were doing that and then asked them to keep track of their mood. Um, it's an activity I do with my students, which is a blast because what I end up is 45 students staring at me angrily um, <laughs> when, I, when I do it. But um, what you see is what people reported is that when they adopted that anger posture, they, they felt more anger in that moment. And, and as part of that as well as when they adopted a happy posture, um, they reported more happiness. So I think it follows from that study that yes, one of the things you can do to sort of trick yourself into to feeling more positively is to make an intentional effort to, to sit in a more positive way. Mm -hmm. Calm yourself, soothe thyself. Yeah. Exactly. All right, Ryan Martin, thank you so much. Very fascinating. Everybody, his book is Why We Get Mad, How to Use Anger for Positive Change. And his website is alltheragescience.com. Thank you very, very much. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I've had a blast. Great. And thank you, everybody, for spending your Thursdays with me. And um, be well, be strong. Thanks. We're living in an unprecedented time when trust in our media and news sources are at an all-time low. It seems that everyone has an agenda, if not a political one, then a business one, as media companies are beholden to advertisers or shareholders. Well, not at bottom line. We're a family-owned business and have been free from the influence of advertising since our start nearly 50 years ago, focused solely on helping people live happier, more fulfilled lives. Our flagship publication, Bottom Line Personal, provides advice that can be put into action each day, helping people do better and feel better. Thousands of top, highly respected, truth-seeking experts have appeared in Bottom Line Personal on topics in all areas of life, including healthcare, financial planning, home improvement tips, great gift ideas, how to save money on travel, insurance snafus, smart tax strategies, improving your relationships, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for nearly 50 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, of some of our experts' greatest tips of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash expert podcast.